1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, and we're going to pick up in verse number 1, read down, uh, read down through about verse number 7, and then we'll pray and jump right in. The Bible says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, I do thank you tonight for your word. Lord, I thank you for the truths that are contained within it. I thank you for the message that you've sent and your faithfulness to do so. Pray that you'd help us tonight to come with a heart to ready to receive it and to respond to it during the invitation. And I just pray you take it even now, Lord, and say what you'd have to say, Lord, to us, and that we be obedient to it, Lord, in our lives as well, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to continue our look. Uh, I don't know how many more weeks we're going to continue the series on advancing in adversity, but we're going to continue our look in that tonight on how we've got to be continually moving forward in the will of God in spite of our circumstances. That's what this series has been all about. Uh, the simple fact that we can't just crouch over and hide in the corner and wait till the storm passes by, because if we'd have done that back in March, we'd still be sitting in the corner because we've had storm after storm, both literally and figuratively pass our way. And so we've got to learn to advance in the midst of adversity. We've looked at several different things, but tonight we're going to look at something that is really on the periphery of why we should advance in adversity. I believe tonight one of the greatest temptations we have to quit when we come into times of adversity, whether just in our spiritual walk or maybe in our homes. I've seen homes implode and collapse because they had that first disagreement. Uh, I can remember my wife and I got married. I guess it was about six months after we got married. Uh, we had our first disagreement. And and it was just earth-shattering, you know, because uh, we got married. She thought I was perfect, and I knew she was perfect. And I thought, how could two perfect people ever have a problem? Uh, and then come to realize that although I tried to dismiss it and she tried to dismiss it, we were both very much human. And we had our first falling out. And I think I cried and she cried. I really did. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I, I don't know what to do in circumstances like this. Hence why we have pre-marriage counseling here at our church, because adversity gives you the temptation to want to quit. Uh, for those of you newly married here who haven't had your first squabble, I assure you it's coming because your spouse is human too. Uh, and then that adversity is going to make you want to repel each other, okay? We're very good at that. The same thing happens in our spiritual walk. When we come to adversity in our walk with God, it makes us want to quit on God. And one of the reasons tonight we're going to look at specifically uh, is the simple fact that as we go through adversity, we feel like it's in vain. We're thinking that I'm going through this difficult time, I'm going through adversity or a trial or chaos or a crisis in my life, and this is no good, but the truth of the matter is tonight that we serve a God who can work all things to our good even in adversity. Aren't you glad? Oftentimes what we do is we naturally focus on the pain, but neglect to give attention to the purpose God may have in the adversity. 
Now, folks, we're natural creatures, and we naturally focus in on the pain, but if we got our focus more on the plan of what God might be doing in the midst of all of this, it might make us more willing to accept the adversity that comes our way. I want you to think about it this way tonight. In John 13, 15, we know this verse well. The Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now think about that tonight. None of us are readily wanting to lay down our lives. I mean, I'm not looking forward to dying anytime soon. My name's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm going to heaven. I'm excited about that. But look, I'm not going to step out there in the middle of Highway 49 and get run over by a bus. I kind of enjoy living. I don't look forward to laying down my life. But wait a minute. What does John 13, 15 say? There's a very important three-letter word we've got to see tonight. It says that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now notice we're not often willing to lay down our life or just give up our life, but when we realize that we're laying down our life or giving it up for something, suddenly it becomes voluntary. You know, if you ask me, Brother Brother Jeremiah, would you like to get shot? Uh, I'm going to tell you no. All right, so for those of you that are thinking about it, I'm going to go ahead and let you know, no, I I don't want to get shot, okay? But you say, Brother Jeremiah, if If somebody's got to get shot in your household, your wife, you or your daughter, I'll raise my hand and volunteer for that. You know why? Because I know what I'm doing it for. You see, when I realize there's going to be something at the end that I desire, I'm willingly able and desirous to lay down my life. Give you another example of that. John 16, 21. Here's a verse uh, that some of us understand. Uh, If you have children running around the house, 16, 21, the Bible says, A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow. Because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, listen close, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Now, I don't know what that means for those of us who have daughters, because it says there's joy for a man that is born into the world. So I don't know what that means. I guess we don't forget about the pain when it's a daughter, but it says that she remembereth the anguish no more. All right, I was there when my daughter was born, and uh, you know, they're sticking needles in my wife, this big needle in her back, and all of this. And I'm just sitting there thinking, God gave you ladies something special. He gave you a fortitude and a courage because I'd be like, sedate me and wake me up three days after it's over. I'd be totally fine with that. It's anguish. Look, when we went to the hospital and found out that our baby was coming on that Wednesday night, uh, you know, I'm thinking, this is going to be terrible. You know, there's, I've seen t- television, you know, those ladies screaming and hollering and throwing things across the room, and it's anguish. But wait a minute. What does 1621 say in the book of John? The Bible says, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. You see, in the end, she sees what it was profiting, and suddenly she doesn't remember the anguish anymore. She forgets all about the anguish. Why? Because in the end, the profit was well worth it. Now, folks, we're going through anguish right now. We're going through adversity and chaos and crisis right now. And right now it's very painful. But in the end, if we could just see what God's plan was in the end, God's plan of what he's doing through all of this, it'll help us forget all about the anguish. But we've got to continue to advance in adversity. That's why Paul says, I press toward the mark for the prize. Paul says, I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize. Now, I want you to remember two words out of that, press and prize. Press and prize. Look, if you focus on the prize, you'll find it a whole lot easier to press. You know what press is? It's advancing in adversity. Remember the woman who had the issue of blood, 12 years? The Bible says she 
fought her way through the press. She had to fight her way to get what she wanted. But I'll guarantee you, if you were to interview her tonight, she would tell you that the press was worth the prize. So we've got to see tonight, God's got a plan, even in adversity. And tonight, we're going to look at one of the most important accomplishments of adversity. I'm so thankful that I serve a God who can accomplish things in my life, in my home, in our church, in our country tonight, even in the midst of adversity. And the one tonight is really spelled out in the entire chapter of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. It's a word we're going to see in verse 7. The Bible says, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. If you, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, the entire chapter, it's only 10 verses long, you're going to find out that the theme of being a godly example is what's repeated over and over again. And you're going to see some things that both Paul and the people at Thessalonica had to go through. There were some things they had to endure in order to be a good example. Can I tell you tonight, I believe we terribly underestimate the power of being a good example, particularly in times of adversity. I think we underestimate that. Uh, we get so focused on the pain, we don't realize that God may have a plan in the midst of our adversity, and that plan is to be a good example of others of what our God can do for us. We sang the song just a few minutes ago, Standing on the Promises. Folks, after we go through all that we've gone through, and who knows what's going to happen in less than two weeks, this country could get turned upside down one way or the other, or, or both, really. And yet people see us as people of God, consistent, standing, faithful, unafraid. Then they ask us, what have you got? I told you the other day, they wonder if you're not on drugs or something. Why do you still have joy? Why do you have peace? Why are you not panicked? Why aren't you not freaking out like the rest of the world? And they realize it's because of what you're standing on. You see, it was a good example. So tonight we're going to look at this subject of the effort in a good example, advancing in adversity, and we're going to look at the effort in a good example, and we're going to see how our example in adversity can accomplish more than our example oftentimes when things are going good. So let's pick up, if we could, look down in verse number five. Verse number five, Paul's reminding the church of the testimony that he had when he came to them. The Bible says, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. But here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Paul says, you knew who we were when we came to you. Paul says, you understood what manner of men that we were. And the Apostle Paul is giving us a laundry list of things that were evident in their life. Paul says it wasn't just in word only, but he begins giving us a list of the evidences in his life of what he preached. Now, verse number five holds a very, very important thing for us tonight, possibly the most difficult effort in being a good example. Number one, notice the evidence must be consistent. The evidence must be consistent. Now, I panicked a little bit knowing that Brother John had hit on consistency the other night, and I was just really hoping and praying he wasn't going to preach my message, all right? I know they both got them from the Lord, uh, but uh, you're like, man, don't preach my message because I have to throw it out and get something else because then folks will think I just knocked off his message. But consistency, I want you to think about how important consistency is tonight in order to be a good example. Notice what Paul is saying. Paul says our testimony wasn't limited to certain areas of our life. Paul says, watch close, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, 
but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Can I tell you tonight the first effort in being a good example is the effort to be consistent. The Apostle Paul says, look, my testimony of the gospel to you was not limited or confined to the one area of the word, but Paul says my testimony was consistent across the board. Can I tell you tonight, if you want to be a good example for the cause of Christ, particularly in this time of adversity, we must make the effort to be consistent in our walk with God and our testimony before others. John Maxwell said this about, uh, about consistency. Motivation gets you going, but discipline keeps you going. That's the law of consistency. It doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter how many opportunities you receive. If you want to grow, consistency is the key. Can I tell you tonight, for the child of God, consistency holds the key to you becoming a godly example in the midst of adversity. Now, why is this so important tonight? Because adversity seeks to sidetrack your consistency of your faith. Is that not what adversity does? Here's Job, Job serving God faithfully. We read that in Job chapter 1, verse number 1. I mean, Job had this wonderful track record of faithfulness and consistency in his faith toward God. Here comes the devil. The devil's trying to tempt him. The devil looks at God and he says, look, if you touch or take away all that he has, he'll curse you. And so here comes the adversity. And what was the devil trying to do with that adversity? He was trying to interrupt the consistency of his faith. Now, folks, if we're not careful, we're going to fall prey to this. And we're not going to realize that the devil's trying to use all that's going on in our lives and then collectively as a church and then collectively as a country. The devil's trying to use adversity to interrupt the consistency of our faith. Why? Because inconsistency is a bad example. The devil doesn't want our light to be shining. The devil wants us to cast mud on the light where it doesn't get out as much. And you know how he does that? Through the inconsistency of the believer. Proverbs 25, 26. I used to preach this verse to my teenagers all the time. Listen to what the Bible says. A righteous man, righteous means what? Upright. Remember that. A righteous man falling down before the wicked is a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. Let's unfold that verse just for a moment. A righteous man falling down before the wicked, not meaning physically, we're talking about morally and spiritually. So here is a righteous man. A righteous man is an upright man, is it not? He's walking uprightly like Job was an upright. He was a righteous man. And the Bible says when a righteous man who is upright falls down before the wicked, it's like a corrupt spring. You know what that means? He's muddying the water. He's poisoning the water hole. Now, folks, understand this tonight. If we as the people of God cannot get some spiritual consistency in our life, we're never going to have the type of testimony that's an example to others of what we say that we believe in. Is this what Paul's saying? Paul says, look, I want you to understand, my gospel was not in word only. Is that not where we usually isolate our testimony? Our testimony is isolated over here in word only. And buddy, have we not learned to talk it good. We know how to speak the right language, say the right words. I mean, we've got it just down pat. We can even say amen the right way and amen at the right times. I mean, we've got it down pat. But watch, it's the other areas of our life that we're inconsistent in. 
that's blowing that out of the water. Paul says, you remember who I was. As a matter of fact, notice what he says at the end of verse number five. He says, as ye know what manner of men we were. He says, you know who we are. He says, you know who we are. Can I tell you something very, very scary? And this does scare me tonight. Those people that I'm around most, they know who I am. They know who I am. My daughter knows who I am. My wife knows who I am. Why? Because I tell them who I am? No, they just watch. They just watch. And they're paying attention to my example. Folks, I believe we isolate our faith often simply to words. Paul says, our gospel came not unto you in word only. That's where our gospel only is. It's only in word. You don't see it lived out in the other areas of our life. But here's something I want you to understand tonight. When you isolate your faith and you isolate that light that's supposed to be shining out of us tonight, you're isolating your influence. What did Matthew chapter 5 say? It says you have this light and you don't take the light and put it under a bushel. All right, uh, manners and customs, we learned that they would take a bushel basket, flip it over, and set the lamp on top of there so it gives light to all in the room. You put the lamp on top of the basket, not under the basket. Why? Because you want the light to go out and influence everybody, all right, or be an example to everybody. You don't put it under there, but here's what we do. We do what we talked about last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Our gospel's hid, and you know who it's hid to? the lost. You see, when you isolate your testimony, you're isolating your influence. Well, look, when the only time you live out your faith is inside this building, then watch this, you're limiting your influence to inside this building. That's it. You're isolating it. And I hate to tell you, look, most of the folks in here, they, they know, all right? They know what we believe. They know what this book says, but it's out there that we've got to make sure that our life is a consistent example of what we believe in. Now, watch what he says here. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. I think Paul is kind of telling us that speaking the word's good, but talk can be cheap. What the proverb says that talk of the lips tendeth to penury or poverty. I think the reason the church is so spiritually poor today is because most of what we do is simply talking of the lips. And Paul says, no, it's got to be across your life and the different areas of our life. It can't be isolated. One of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon, I don't know if I've used it here before, but I've used it preaching somewhere. It said, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. Amen. Our life is more forcible than our speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. What if tonight that was true, that our deeds were dollars and our words were pennies? I think tonight we would be at that place of poverty. Why? Because so often in our life, there's not enough evidence that's consistent enough to convince anybody that we believe what we say we believe. Now, here's what's interesting. When you look down in verse 5, he gives us a couple of different areas that our faith should be evident in. He says, not only was our faith evident or our testimony evident in word, but watch this, but also in power. You see, the testimony of their words 
was also reflected in the power that they had in their service to God. Can I ask you tonight, does the power in your life measure up and line up consistently with the words that we say about the faith that we say we believe in? I mean, we talk a good game. Man, we talk a good game. Second Chronicles 7, 14, we can quote it and we rattle it off. And man, we just get it all right out of here. But let me ask you, is there power in your life as well that measures up to give a consistency that that's really what you believe? I hate to say it today, but I'm finding very little power in the people of God. I mean, we don't have enough power to strike a spiritual match and we're wondering tonight why our country's in the shape it's in. The, shape it's, the reason it's in the shape it's in is because there's no consistency amongst the people of God. There's not enough evidence tonight. It doesn't line up. What does he say? He said, I didn't just come to you in word, but also in power. Can I tell you tonight something? Safe people ought to have a power to do something that lost people can't. I believe that tonight. The people of God ought to have some kind of a power in their life to do things that lost people can't. Listen, we ought to have the power to say no to some things, and we ought to have some power to say yes to some things. But look, we talk about it, and yet we look at our life, and our power meter's on empty. You know, that dummy light that went off five years ago. You know, don't, don't, don't let you know. I've told you before, I had an 86 F-150, and the gas needle didn't work. I knew that when, as soon as it hit that little white line of E, I had about 44 miles. I had about 44 miles to go. Don't push it. Sometimes I'd be thinking, you know what, I got a little more in there. I don't have to stop and put something in the tank. And yes, sure enough, here I am pushing a truck down the road. Boy, I tell you, sometimes if you need some humility, just run out of gas. And all your other preacher brethren are passing by honking at you and waving. I don't know what their problem is. Can I tell you tonight, that's who we are. We are spiritually out of power. And we're wondering why we're not a good example. We're wondering why we're not very convincing in our testimony. Here's why. Our power is not lining up with our speech. Paul says, look, I want you to understand. I'm going to show you in point number two tonight why this is so important, that your evidence be consistent. We've got to be consistent. What we speak of should measure up in the power of God in our life. And yet the people of God today don't have much power. Remember my dad years ago, gave me some of the greatest advice I think I've ever gotten preaching. I was a teenager going to preach a revival somewhere. My dad says, I'm walking out the door, and I'm so excited preaching revival. Boy, that was a big thing to a teenage boy. Get ready to walk out the door. My dad says, son, when you get up there, I know you're going to be excited. And I know, well, your heart's going to be pounding and your revival. You feel like a revival, you know. You've got to throw some fireballs out there. And you've got to tell some good stories, you know. And that's why preachers steal other preachers' stories because they need some good stories. And as Brother Heil said years ago, they haven't gone out and got any stories of their own, so they have to borrow somebody else's. My dad said, before I walked out the door, he says, so when you get up there tonight, he says, don't preach beyond your life. You know that humility again? <laughs> Sawed off at the carnal knees. And I needed it. Don't preach beyond your life. Don't get up there and talk a good game of something that you're not living. Don't get up there and preach something that's inconsistent with your life. Going to another church, they don't know you, they haven't seen you. Boy, you can get up and you can preach on soul winning and separation. All that. You know, evangelists have the greatest job in the world. They get to go start fires and run. That's what they do. They go up to the hornet's nest and they stir it up and they hand the stick to the pastor and they take off on Friday. 
Oh, it's so easy to do that, but can I tell you, it's catching up with us that for too long the church has preached beyond our life. What we have said with our words is not lining up as evidence in power. Keep reading quickly. He says, not only in power, but also, and in the Holy Ghost. Don't let that scare you tonight, okay? Holy Ghost shouldn't scare you at all, the people of God. Notice Paul says, not only was there evidence in our words, but there was evidence in our power, but there was evidence of the Holy Ghost in what we were doing. Notice Paul says, connect the dots. Here was one evidence. Here was two evidence. Here's three evidence. Can I ask you tonight, is there Holy Spirit influence in much of what you do and say on a daily basis in your life? Is there an active Holy Spirit influence in what you say, what you do, how we're raising our children, how we're living our lives? Because I want you to know that's an evidence that the world definitely needs to see that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Listen, we're not doing this of our own accord. We're doing this by the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, that spiritual GPS that God put in here the day that we got saved. And you know what most of us do? I'm guilty. We tune that off and turn that off and tune it out. You know, that Holy Spirit speaks with a still, small voice. It doesn't mean it's not clear. I know it very well. It's like my wife said years ago. My wife, we've been married 15 years now. And uh, we can go and have church with her mom and dad. And her mom can clear her throat at the back of the church. And my wife still gets goosebumps looking around. <clears throat> I know what it sounds like when my dad cleared it. I can tell you my dad's snap over anybody else's snap. Oh, I know it. Look, it doesn't have to be loud, but it's very clear, isn't it? Can I ask you again tonight? Does the Holy Spirit have much influence about what you do or about what you say? If the Holy Spirit doesn't have much influence in your life on how you live your life, there's an inconsistency. The evidence has got to be consistent. It's got to line up our words with our power and the Holy Spirit influence in our life. It should be there. And I hate to tell you something today. I think we're lacking in that one right there. We don't have much power. We definitely don't have much leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. What did the Bible say in John 15 about the Holy Spirit? When he comes, the Bible called him a comforter. Do we as the people of God... Do we live as people who are carrying around the holy comforter of God with us? Are we as panicked and pandemonium as the rest of the world? Look, I'm not saying we don't be prudent. But I'm saying tonight, do we have any peace or any comfort in our life that only comes from the Holy Spirit of God? I'm so thankful for that. There are times where my flesh desires to do things uh, that are going to get me in trouble. My mouth loves to say things that get me in trouble. My mouth loves to open just wide enough to put my foot in it and stick it down my throat. And all of a sudden, there's something. It tugs. And my mouth wants to close. And I'm like, no, this is a good one. They need to hear this. I need to say this. Evidently, my wife doesn't understand something. I'm fixing to clarify it for her. I'm going to fly over. And I'm going to drop that. And you feel this tug again. What is that? It's not heartburn. It's the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit's trying to influence your life. He's trying to get you out of trouble. I'm like, just sit back here and let me do the driving. And oh, 
oh, do I get in trouble. Why? I'm not letting the Holy Spirit influence my life. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit in John 16? The Bible says he'll guide us in all truth. You know what a guide is? It's someone who influences direction. God gave us this nifty little spiritual GPS inside our heart, and it wants to give us direction, and he's better than Siri, all right? Siri's gotten sharper lately. She's been studying, doing some homework. She's gotten sharper than she was. I want to tell you, she's nothing compared to the Holy Spirit. Not only will he guide you, I mean, sometimes Siri guides me to ice cream shops or Krispy Kreme. I don't need to be going there. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you in what? Truth. Folks, can I ask you tonight? I'm going to ask you again. Is there any evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence in your life? Is he that comforter? Does he guide us in all truth? This morning I had a wonderful, uh, wonderful fellowship meeting with, um, with Brother Thatch. And I don't know if I see Brother Thatch here tonight. Uh, Brother Thatch is fighting cancer right now. Everybody knows. We're praying for him and asking God to heal him. I'm sitting there in the office and we're talking about cancer. And we're talking about uh, ailments of the flesh. You know, while I'm sitting there, I'm just listening to him talk about how he's grown through this and how he's gotten closer to God through this and how he's, he's growing as a Christian through this. And here I am thinking, you know, Brother Thatch's age and Brother Thatch's condition, oftentimes people just go ahead and quit on God, give up on God. And yet just sitting there listening to him talk and listening, listen to his spirit. I could tell the Holy Spirit influence in his life. And it impacted me. You know what it was? It was an example. That he's allowed the Holy Spirit of God, even in the midst of his adversity, the Holy Spirit of God had influence, and it was a good example to me. Do you know why? Because I saw consistency. He wasn't just talking about it. It's easy to talk about it when there's no diagnosis. Easy to talk about what you're going to do and how you're going to stand and what you believe. But, oh, it's a whole other story. When you do get the diagnosis and things are not going as well as you desire, they would. And yet people watch. I was one of the people watching. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening. And it's not just in word. It was in his spirit. So folks, tonight, number one, if we're going to be a good example in the midst of our adversity, the evidence must be consistent. Now, what does this have to do with adversity? What does it have to do with adversity? Remember, adversity seeks to disrupt. Am I messing with this mic, guys? Did I tear that up? Probably spit on it. Got a big old spitball right on it, messed it up. I told Brother LaPone earlier, I go to get water right before I preach. I'm going to fill that thing with water one day. It's just in a horrible spot. And I'm going to get electrocuted and die. But at least I go out swinging. Amen? Adversity seeks to disrupt your consistency of your faith. Okay? Satan seeks to use adversity in your life to disrupt the consistency of your faith. And the reason tonight you've got to be consistent is because when you go through the fire, that's when the king is looking down in the furnace. And he's watching. You know what he's watching for? He's looking for a good example. We see that in the life of Job. We see that in the life of Peter when he was walking on water. Oh, Peter was doing so good with his faith. And Peter's walking on water, but then he began to notice what? Instead of focusing on the plan, he started focusing on the pain or the problem. What was it? It was the storm. That's when he began to sing. What happened? Adversity disrupted the consistency of his faith. Now, folks, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what's inside of your heart, what may be going through in your home tonight, but I do do know this for sure, that Satan is going to seek to use that adversity to disrupt your faith. Why? Because he cannot afford you to be a good example. He cannot afford you to influence someone else. 
Real quickly, before I give you number two, I want you to think about Jesus when he was in the wilderness and hungered. Here's Jesus, and he's hungry. Man, it's hard for me to go 40 minutes without food, more or less 40 days. I'm over two weeks into this thing. I've already got one suit, pair of suit pants that don't fit. I got to get them taken up. If anybody does that, I need some pants taken up. Amen. Why? Because I'm being consistent. You see? It pays off. Be consistent. Here's Jesus 40 days without anything to eat. And then here comes, watch this. If that was not enough adversity, here comes a right-hand punch from the devil himself. What was the devil trying to do? What was he trying to do? He was trying to disrupt the consistency of Christ. By the way, if he had disrupted the consistency of Christ, none of us could be saved. I'm so thankful for the consistency of Christ that he just advanced in the middle of his adversity. He just kept on going. And oh, he left behind a path for us to follow. We're going to look at that here in just a minute. I want to get ahead of myself. So number one, if you're going to be a good example and have the testimony of a good example, Paul says, I want you to remember who we were. We had evidence that was consistent in our life. But watch verse 6. Verse 6, you're going to see what happens when the evidence is consistent. Verse 6 begins with the word and. That means he's continuing the thought from verse 5. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord. Now notice what happened. He says, look, you know who we were. We were consistent not only in word, but in power and the influence of the Holy Spirit in the way that we lived our lives and the way of our testimony of the gospel of Christ. And the result of that is verse 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord. Number two tonight, when evidence is consistent, the effect will be convincing. When evidence is consistent... When people can see across our life that it's not just in word, but there's power to back that up. And there's influence of the Holy Spirit to back that up in our life. Can I tell you, you will find yourself more convincing to those that are watching. Was not the king convinced when he looked down in the fiery furnace and saw those, four, those three men walking in the fire. And the fourth one that was with them was like unto the Son of God. I think he got convinced real quick, didn't he? He didn't say, heat it up some more. Throw some rocks at them. No. What did he say? He said, pull them out. He declared to the entire kingdom that no one could speak against their God. Why? Because he was the God. He was convinced. What happened? Well, the evidence was there, and the effect was convincing. See, at the end of verse number 5, it says, You know what manner of men we were among you. That means we weren't pretending. You know who we were, and that's what was convincing them. Can I tell you tonight... What's at stake for America? What's at stake for your home and this church and those that are about you is that we be convincing by having evidence in our life that's consistent. If we want to change America, here's the problem. Look, we're trying to convince them in word only. Look, you're supposed to go out, highways and hedges, compel them to come in. Yes, we take the plan of salvation. We learn the Romans road and we tell them. But I want you to know, you can blow that out of the water real quick if they look at your life and don't see enough evidence to convince them that what you're saying is true. Don't tell them all about God and how powerful God is and they look at you and you can't even muster the strength to get out of bed on Sunday night. If they don't see some kind of power in your life that you can do something they can't do, don't expect them to be convinced. And we've tried to convince them in word only, but there's no evidence, and that's why they don't believe what we have to say. There's one thing I know for sure, because I love good food, it's that consistency is convincing. Let me tell you why. 
McDonald's, I like McDonald's from time to time. We're in a pinch, but got to be in a pinch. Sometimes the ice cream machine's working. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> Sorry we're out of that. We had this running game in our house. When we, go, when we go through McDonald's, we pull up, and I say, watch this. They're fixing to say, sorry, our ice cream machine is down. And about 50% of the time, we get it right. So I usually go to Sonic, or I used to, when I was off in the calories, before I repented and got right. I said, I'm not going here anymore. Why? Because they're not consistent it's not right, man. They messed it up, and it's always back and forth, on, off, up, down. So I go to Sonic. Usually at Sonic, they get it right. You know why I go to Raising Cane's? Number one, because it's good. Number two, they're consistent. Every Raising Cane's I've ever been to, it tastes the same. I mean, my goodness, that sauce. I haven't counted the calories for that yet because we haven't been there. I can tell you the calories for just about anything now. I've been keeping track of them on my phone. Man, you go to Raising Cane's and you order chicken, you know what it's going to taste like. But the Bado introduced me to something. I'm fixing to introduce you to something tonight, and it's going to be the most important part of the message in your life, I'm sure. You can order your bread bobbed. Did you know that? How many of you knew that tonight? You can order your bread bobbed. Bob stands for buttered on both sides. Some of you, your mind, you're going to Cane's as soon as church is over, aren't you? You're going to see all the central stickers lined up. You're going to be those obnoxious people lined up there on Hardy Street all the way down to the college waiting to get in at Grays and Canes. Man, it's good. I get a, you get a six-pack of bobs. Look, go do it. Drive through there. Brother Bado taught me that. I mean, Brother Bado's in the know. And we went through there one day, and he said, I, I thought he was joking. I said, do y'all really do bobs? He, oh, yeah, absolutely, because I didn't know if he was tricking me or not, because he's trickery, you know, sometimes like that as well. And so you go through there, you know what the bread's going to taste like, you know the chicken's going to taste like, and then there's that sauce. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not ashamed to sit there and just stick my tongue down in that stuff. <laughs> you ever walk in there and I got that cup and I'll, I don't care. I'm a married man and she don't care. She's not embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. You know, it's a wonderful place when you get to your life when you just don't care. Amen. You know, I can't, I can't wait to my 60s and 70s because I know you really don't care when you get that old. You just bump into cars and keep on going, you know, just bumping into people with your buggy. My great-grandma, 94 years old, she would just sit there and bump you with her buggy to get you out of the way. Why? She reached 94 years old. Respect. You just go out there and claim it. Man, I don't know how we got off on that subject. But you go to Raising Cane. That's where we're going. They're consistent, aren't they? And that causes you to keep turning in. And you turn in. And you turn in. You quit going to those places that aren't consistent, don't you? You get tired of hearing about all the ice cream machine down. I don't want to hear it no more. I give up on you. Ichabod above the door at McDonald's. <laughs> the glory of the Lord's departed. I don't know if it was ever there, but it's definitely gone. Why? Because they're inconsistent. And I want you to know tonight, church is no different. If we're inconsistent in the way we live our life, and the evidence doesn't line up, then we should not be surprised tonight if we're not convincing. Now, why should we worry about being convincing? Why is it important that they be convinced? So Paul says, you see the evidence in verse 5. It's not just in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit. And it says, that gave them much assurance, and you knew who we were, and the result was, verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Now, this is very, very important. Why is it important that we have the evidence 
that produces a convincing effect in the lives of people. It's because the evidence that Paul and Silas and those that were with him, Gay or Timothy, that gave them, the Bible says it led them to Christ. Here's what they did. They went connect the dots, dot one, words, dot two, power, dot three, Holy Spirit. That gave them assurance, and they said, you know what? It led them all the way to Christ. Now, let's ask ourselves a very important question tonight. Can people connect the dots in our life enough to lead them to Christ? Paul says, and ye became followers of us. Think about this. They started following the good example of Paul. And by following the good example of Paul, they came to know Christ. Could people follow you tonight? And the good example of your life, could they follow that enough tonight and have enough consistency that that led them to Christ? You see, that's why it's important tonight that there be evidence. Why? Because the effect is convincing them to trust in who we've trusted in. Paul says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. I think about tonight, the fact that my daughter's saved. Following Christ doesn't end when you get saved. It begins when you get saved. My wife and I had a conversation yesterday coming out Elk Slate Road, and I was quiet, so she automatically assumed I was mad because I have a bad history of that. And when I get quiet, I get mad. It's better to blow up by myself than to blow up on somebody else. She said, everything okay? I said, yeah. And she says, what's going on? I can tell with this. You know, you wives do that to your husbands. You can tell with this, something's going on, kind of quiet, straight-faced. And I said, I'm not mad. I said, I'm just burdened about a few things. He said, what? I said, you know, our daughter's 13. And I said, boy, we've got to make sure right now that we're leaving her an example. We would not have this conversation. I said, we've got to leave her the right example. Not look, you said, well, she's already saved. But look, your example should not only lead them to Christ, your example should lead them to follow Christ. If my daughter follows the example that's left by mom and dad, look, I hope that she would just continue following Christ all of her life like a bunch of little ducks in a row. Wouldn't that be a blessing? That we just follow Christ all the way to heaven one day. But sadly, so often, adversity comes. I, I got a songbook tonight. I had Brother Nate get that. I want to read you a, a wonderful hymn tonight. Uh, page 231 in here. It's the song, Follow On. Listen close. Down in the valley with my Savior, I would go. How many times do we get to the valley and we turn off and we quit following? And guess who's following us? Our children. And our children learn by our bad example that when you come to a valley, you quit following. Down in the valley with my Savior, I would go. Where the, where the flowers are blooming and the sweet waters flow. Everywhere he leads me, I would follow, follow on. Walking in his footsteps to the crown be won. Listen to verse 2. Down in the valley with my Savior I would go, where the storms are sweeping and the dark waters flow. Ooh, that's a hard verse to sing. But I'm going to go where the storms are sweeping, the dark waters flow. With his hand to lead me, I will never, never fear. Danger cannot frighten me if my Lord is near. Down in the valley or upon the mountain steep, close beside my Savior would my soul ever keep. He will lead me safely in the path that he has trod up to where they gather on the hills of God. I wonder tonight if our children can see enough evidence in our life that as they follow us, they're going to follow Christ through their life. And the only way they're going to do that tonight is if there's enough evidence to have a convincing effect in their life. Several years ago, I was hunting in Colorado, my first elk hunt. And I'd saved up to go. I'd bartered some work to go. And I was so excited. I'd never been uh, hunting in the Rocky Mountains. And so we get up there on day one. 
And here I am walking through the woods, not knowing how to elk hunt or what to do. I'm just going to sit there and pray. That's all I knew to do. Sit there and pray. God sends me one. Well, I'm sitting there and I'm praying. I get a phone call uh, that some of the guys on the other side of the property had spotted some elk. And so I ran all the way there. And let me tell you, it's hard to run up there in the mountains. It was a sad sight. <gasps> all the way across the way. When I got over there, I sure enough, I spotted an elk down in one of the valleys that were there. Uh, and I perched my gun. I didn't have a bipod, so I perched my gun there in a little bush to be my bipod. And right as I was getting ready to shoot, the elk wheeled around. Pow! I shot, and I saw him grimace. He takes off running. I'm sure I've killed him because I'm a straight shooter. So I'm sure that I've killed that elk. I go over to where he's at, and I look down the ground where he was, and there's blood on the ground. And I said, okay, he's out there. Just give him a little while, and we'll go pick him up. So we started following the blood drops, and it was good blood drops, good blood, good blood. We're just following through, and all of a sudden, the blood drops began getting less and less. Maybe a little drop here, a little drop here, and then you go 15 feet, there's another drop, and then 30 feet is another drop, and then after a while, the drops stopped, and we never found my, my first elk. We lost him. We couldn't find him. Do you know why? Because what we were using to follow, connecting those dots, he just ran out. And I fear this is what we do spiritually. Our young people are never going to come to know Christ or follow Christ because we're not leaving a good enough trail for them to follow. And they get lost along the way. So number two tonight, how do we be a good example? And the efforts in a good example, the effect will be convincing. I believe tonight that the adversity we go through is worth every effort that it takes if it meant pointing someone to Christ. And that's what happened in verse 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word. Now watch this, and I'll give you the last one. Having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. Notice that this did not come easy. The Thessalonians who received the word and had trusted Christ and were following Paul and following Christ subsequently, it did not come easy because they had to receive the word in much affliction. You say, what affliction is that? If you will, turn with me to Acts 17, and I'll show it to you real quick. Acts 17, we're going to read exactly what Paul was talking about. If you look down in Acts 17 and pick up in verse, um, let's pick up in verse number 5. I'll, say, well, I'll, re- I'll, I'll begin in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believe, this is the same people we're talking about, Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company, and set all the city in uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Notice what happened. These people here, in order to receive and to follow after Christ, it did not come easy. In order for them to have what they have, it did not come easy. That's why number three tonight, notice about a good example, is the expense will be costly. The expense is going to be costly if you're going to become someone who others follow. And if you look back in 1 Thessalonians 1, the Bible says that after they got saved in verse 7, so that they, that ye, were examples to all that are at Macedonia. 
They became examples to others, but it only, listen, came through great affliction. Understand, if we're going to be the examples for Christ that we're called to be, and be a good examples that others could follow us and lead them to Christ and go on to influence others, we've got to be willing to accept the affliction. We've got to see past the pain to see the plan of what God's trying to do. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, I bear in my body the marks. I bear in my body the marks. Why? Paul said it was through much affliction. In order to be the example God's called us to be, there's going to be affliction. But oh, I'll tell you what affliction will do. Affliction will give you an audience that prosperity will not. Affliction will give you the opportunity to have eyes upon you that others may not ever want to look upon you or look to, look to you as an example. Why? Because you're going through affliction. They want to see how you're going to handle it. Tonight, folks, we've got to understand that the expense is going to be costly. I want to read you one verse, and we're going to be done in 1 Peter chapter 2. Stick with me here, and we're going to be done. 1 Peter chapter 2, look down to verse 21. Paul says this. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. It's amazing the way it all locks together. Christ just didn't just tell us in his book, here, here's what you do. No, he came down and provided an example. Even in affliction. What did it say? The Bible says in verse 21, Christ also suffered. So we understand that as we follow Christ, that indeed we will go down in the valley with him. That indeed there's times that we're going to go to the place where the storm is sweeping by, but we're following in the footsteps of where he has trod. And he left us an example. And folks, if we're willing tonight to pay the expense, do you know a godly, a goodly example tonight is worth its weight in gold. What does the Bible say about a good name? It's rather to be chosen than great riches. If we desire to be a godly example that others could follow and lead them to Christ, I want you to know it's going to be costly simply because it's so valuable. And the expense oftentimes is going to be affliction. But oh my goodness, when you see the plan of what he was doing, I'm so glad that Christ saw past the pain of Gethsemane and the pain of the scourging and the pain of the crucifixion. Why? Because he knew the plan. The Bible says that he humbled himself and became obedient unto his cross. He embraced his cross. He embraced the affliction. Why? Because he knew it was all part of the plan. He said, this is part of the plan. And I'm leaving them an example. Christ knew back 2,020 years ago that 2020 was coming. And yet here we are as we go through this affliction. If we look close within the pages of this book, we can find the footsteps that he led. And if we're willing to follow in those footsteps in the midst of our affliction, we will leave an example for those who are following us that's going to lead them to him. Tonight, let's have our heads bowed.